0: Hi, my name is Adam Lund, and welcome to the Emergency Medicine Network podcast series. It is May 29th, 2020, and I'm looking forward to interviewing Dr. Daniel Kalla, author of The Last High. This is the first of the series that I've done. So, briefly on me, I'm uh, an emergency physician that works at Royal Columbia and Eagle Ridge Hospital in Fraser Health. I also work with BCEHS as a paramedic advisor, and my little side gig is uh, enjoy doing event medicine. Uh, just a little disclaimer stuff up front. We're gonna have a casual chat with Dan about his great new novel. Comments and opinions made are are mine and Dan's. They don't necessarily represent the Emergency Medicine Network or its funders. And a big thanks to the BC Academic Health Sciences Network, the funding agency behind the Emergency Medicine Network. Today's guest is Dr. Daniel Kalla, author of The Last High. Dan's a well-known eMERGE doc, paramedic advisor hospital leader family man author of international bestsellers in other words classic emergency medicine underachiever you can read more about dan at his website Danielcala.com. dan hey thanks welcome to uh welcome to our podcast
1: oh it's great to be here thanks for having me
0: i think you're a pretty well-known guy in the bc emergency medicine community and clearly far beyond that but uh, for those who haven't met you before can you tell us a little bit about yourself
1: Oh, I, I think your intro did better than uh i would do <laughs> i'm one of those people who always looks better on paper than i do in person <laughs> but uh yeah i mean i've been an emerge doc for the last 28 years mainly at saint paul's I, I love being part of our community and i you know i love the opportunities that emergency medicine has granted me to explore writing and administration and all kinds of things and you know i'm
0: born and raised in vancouver so it it makes me proud to be part of this uh, network i remember my first uh my first book of yours was your first book i probably was around 2007 when i read pandemic and uh when you and i chatted about doing an interview, we both agreed that we're really not going to talk about COVID today, despite the fact that <laughs> yeah. that seems quite topical. So I'll bring that up, but uh, I do want to mention that reading that book left a visual impression on me—a little, little, little scar, to be honest. I had this vision of somebody sipping out of an endotracheal tube, and uh, yeah. I hope that's not a spoiler. But uh, this is clearly a topic you've talked about for a long time and written about <laughs> before. With "We All Fall Down," one of your books was reminiscent of the plague, and uh, you've written about resistance and superbugs. So. Uh, a big topic and, and perhaps something to discuss in a, in a future podcast. Today, we're going to talk about your latest one, which is The Last High. Can I ask you, what got you started on writing novels?
1: Yeah, I, I, I don't have a very good answer for that. I just, I always felt I had it in me. I've always been a bit of a storyteller, uh, potentially even a bit of a fabricator, but, you know, I always had it in, in, in that, i you know, that I would eventually tell stories and Tell novels. And, you know, I was one of those obnoxious guys that used to go to parties in the 20s and tell people I would never be rolled their eyes and such. And literally, I mean, I, as a kid, young kid, I loved to write stories. And I, I tell people I wrote this postcard when I was 15 that was well received. And I kind of went into retirement for 15 years after that. But I never got the idea of writing out of my mind. And I, I took this night school course shortly after I started in emergency medicine. I dragged a couple friends along and I was just so hooked. It was actually about screenwriting. But, you know, just the introduction, the um, support and encouragement of the teacher who became a friend. And, you know, I just, you know, I I tell people it's the closest thing I've had to an addiction. Once I started that first chapter, once I started writing, I just I really haven't stopped since in the last 20 plus years.
0: I think as an emerged community, most people have this derailment that happens called medical school and then residency where wellness and, and balance in life is taken far, far off course. So going through that and then getting back into your clinical career, was there a particular inflection point where you said, it's time, it's time to start writing?
1: I think it was shortly after my first daughter was born. And I don't know, I mean, (laughs) you know how all-consuming that is with the kids and stuff. Yeah. But she was about a year old and, and, uh, you know, and I was loving her and realized, you know, I want to explore other facets of my life. It has, as you said, been so focused on medicine up until that point and emergency medicine and I really realized I, I needed a different outlet. I, I didn't really understand it at the time, but that's when I started pursuing that course and reading books on, you know, and for any aspiring other novelists or writers of any kind out there, especially fiction writers, I'd encourage you to read that book, Stephen King on writing. It's not really a technical book, but it's an absolutely inspirational book about the process and, and what writing is about. And I sort of, I read that book and a few others at the time, and I just I just knew in my heart, this is it was time and it's what I wanted to do.
0: I remember reading that book and him describing going to this little hotel and writing in the, in the room and getting himself into his writing space. So that's yeah. really cool. Did you have any false starts? Was there, a, or was it, <laughs> yeah. a clean, was it a clean takeoff? Well, you yeah, know, it's so funny because out of this course, my buddies
1: and I wrote this kind of black comedy and the, uh, a screenplay or a script for it. And our teacher really liked it and he was well-connected and the writer himself. And he connected us to these producers and uh, we turned in the draft um, on a Tuesday, and we get this call on the Friday, we want to make this film, you know, like of course, the film was never made as such as the case in <laughs> the film business. but it went but I thought, you know what, what are all these people talking about rejection and stuff? This is the easiest thing in the world. You turn it in on Tuesday, you have your uh, producer on a Friday. And then I started novel writing and I had two manuscripts that never got off the ground. And I, you know, I got to know all about rejection over the next three, four years as I submission after submission. And you know, I found an agent, but then the agent couldn't find a publisher and so but I think it was I was so lucky to have that initial taste that gave me that kind of jolt of confidence that maybe maybe I could do it. Otherwise I might have stopped, you know. But I just pushed through. And luckily
0: I didn't really know any better at the time. So
1: yeah, lots of Lots of setbacks in the
0: career. Well, I'm glad that you persisted, obviously. I've always been a bit of a book nerd, far too much space in my house dedicated to uh, <laughs> to books. Um, I remember f- before medical school that uh, some of the authors who wrote about the medical space were influencers, and I recognize some of that's works of fiction, but it gave me some insights into some of the characters, Robin Cook, Michael Crichton, mm-hmm. Samuel Shem. Um, did you have some influences in terms of uh, how yeah. you chose to go into a particular genre of writing? Yeah,
1: hugely. You know, it embarrasses me to admit I don't read that many medical thrillers anymore <laughs> since I write them. And, you know, there's some great writers out there like Tess Gerritz and you know, Kathy Reichs and lots who, who write these really interesting books. I don't always get a chance to read them. But but Michael Crichton for me was, you know, the way he would take those big medical or just scientific topics and 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 turn them into these great fun reads and at the end of the day you know you learn about dinosaurs and dna from jurassic park you learn about pandemics from the andromeda strain and all the other books in between i was just blown away it reminded me growing up my favorite author was james mishner because that's how i got my history you'd get attached to a character and you'd learn about south africa or israel or whatever or alaska whatever he's writing about and so that was always my intention was to use you know my insider's knowledge of medicine and whatever else I can glean and package up some information, a little bit of education without uh, the reader ever feeling like that's, that's what was happening, you know, and, uh, you know, and if you can get characters that people can empathize with and attach with, it's incredible amount of technical detail you can share and you can sort of pull back the curtain on the medical world a little bit. So there's lots of great authors who, who do that, you know, And, and Robin Cook's been a trailblazer, of course, but, but Michael Crichton was my icon as uh, as a medical writer.
0: I hope it's received as a compliment that uh, your writing does reflect some of the influence of, uh, of that icon. And, and, and I certainly feel when I read your books, some of the same things that I, I felt reading Michael Crichton's books as well. Oh, thank you.
1: That's a huge compliment. Thanks, Adam.
0: You've talked about the idea of a scientific topic and being able to spin a story around it and, and teach a little bit through the writing. How do you hook onto an issue and how does it go from a, the seed of an idea to start germinating into the actual story?
1: You know, it's, uh, that's a great question. There's never, seems to be different for every novel I've written. You know, it was my 11th novel. I remember I, I, one of my favorite novels is a novel called Blood Lies. And the whole idea for that novel came when a paramedic came up to me and said, uh, is blood always a true marker of somebody's DNA? Is that what if someone had a bone marrow transplant? I was going, oh, my God, what a great hook for somebody, <laughs> you know, and then I, I then I took an old theme that had been done a lot before, but identical twins. But I took the twist of a bone marrow transplant and use somebody else's bone marrow to frame them for murder. Right. And that was just like just out of a casual comment from a paramedics question. This latest novel was very much um, something I've been wanting to write about for a few years and something, you know, I thought of all the medical topics, of all the hot button issues. Maybe this is the one I know best about through my, my experience working at St. Paul's. So that was a very deliberate choice of topics and then to find the story to build around it. But but often it's very random. You know, I've written about lake in the Antarctic with prions in it, you know, and I've written about because somebody told me about this lake. I had no idea. It just sounded fascinating. And of course, I wrote that historical trilogy about Shanghai when people told me about these 20,000 German Jews who had escaped to Shanghai and and recreated Europe in the middle of Shanghai. I thought that's just astounding to me. So when an idea grabs me like that, then I just have to find a way to build a story around it. And and so I I love that part. That's maybe one of my favorite parts of
0: writing. Being on the receiving end of of a great novel I get brought into a world, introduced to characters, and 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 taken to locations that I haven't been to. Is that an exponentially similar experience for you as a writer?
1: For sure, and, and the you know and the learning, you know, I, I find it so hard because of my lifelong ADHD to sit down and read journal articles and stuff. But but if I'm writing, you know, about the opioid crisis or about pandemics or whatever. I can just read for hours and you know and pick up these little things tidbits of information that that are all new to me so it's always a huge education for me and I also now more and more turn to experts you know I don't just rely on my google research I go and I talk to experts in public health infectious diseases you know in the case of this book I had a cop friend who has worked in the drug world for years and just gave me a crash course in the criminal side of opioids which I knew nothing about and it was just Incredible to me, so yeah, I love that part. I learn more when I'm writing a book than any other time for sure.
0: I know some of your books have continuity of characters, but when you write a, a collection of characters that maybe are only existing in one story as a reader, we miss them when we have to cl- turn that last page as do you feel the same sense of mourning when you have to put a group of characters aside?
1: uh you know, yes and no because. It's surprisingly challenging. So I've written the one trilogy with a series of characters, and and only one other my my other eleven books is a sequel, and it's all the details you have to remember from the first book. You know, some character that in fact died in the first book, and you forgot, and you're putting him in the second book. There's <laughs> I mean, all these weird for secondary and tertiary characters, you have to keep this kind of detailed record like a lifeline <laughs> exactly so i kind of <laughs> like the fresh start plus it takes me in kind of new directions you know i try i find it you know i i i write from very minimal outlines right like it's two three pages so i'm learning the characters as i'm writing about them so they often change the voice to a degree of the story and certainly the direction of of, of the story so it, it, i find it gives me more options to have a fresh cast every time to be honest
0: well that's interesting Let's get right into the current book. Um, we'll fast forward to 2020, The Last High, your 11th novel. I had the pleasure of reading it last week. I set myself the goal with my Kindle reader of reading 20% of the book a day, and that worked out really well for the first day or two. And then on my third sitting, I just, I couldn't stop. And so <laughs> that day was otherwise less productive, but uh, I, I, it was a wonderful way to enjoy a sunny day in my backyard. Um, we, In talking about this book, it's just brand new. It's been out for two weeks. I don't want to put in any spoilers for those who haven't had a chance to read it yet. But I don't think it's giving anything to waive that this book centers around a cluster of deaths in the context of the opioid crisis. Can you tell me a little bit about why this issue, and maybe why this issue at this time?
1: Yeah. Well, I mean, in a way, uh, I mean, Adam, as you have had so much experience, of the Colombian and deal sometimes with the same similar population, some of the similar clients we deal mm-hmm. with at the, the St. Paul's. And this issue has been topical for 25 years. It's become tragic in the last five years with the growth of these ultrapotent opioids and the death weight we've seen. In a way, it's become almost more relevant in the last two, three months because COVID has so overshadowed it and we're starting to lose ground on, the you know, you saw those stats that BC had the highest opioid overdose rates in March and April than they've seen in two or three years and some of the highest they've ever seen. And so when, just when we had started to flatten the curve as it was on the opioid crisis, it's gotten much worse. So this is incredibly, even though I've been fortunate not to have drug or alcohol issues directly in my family, professionally, I've lived around this world forever. And I know, you know, people, friends and stuff who've been directly touched. I, I don't think people realize the extent of how far reaching this opioid crisis it is. And it was so important to me to get that message out. Hey, don't judge the people who are most downtrodden, who are the hardest core users, nobody chooses that lifestyle, and I believe it's a, a genetically inheritable disease and not a shortcoming or a criminal offense that they end up there. But B, there's all these other people who are, you know, casual users or unknowing users or first-time users who die, and there's all these parents. I mean, you know, 12,000 deaths in Canada in the last three years, most of those people were buried by their parents or at least outlived by their parents, which is incredibly tragic. So. It just seems like, and I I just don't think, especially I think in the medical community we know, but I think in the lay community that people just aren't
0: aware of how far and wide reaching this tragedy is. I don't want to drop any spoilers, but one of your key characters who is uh, in the medical community has very important addiction backstory themselves in the novel. Is it an important message for you that the providers also suffer with this issue?
1: Yeah. I love how far you're going to protect spoilers, but this is all established in the first couple of pages. I think we can share that the heroine is a former fentanyl addict, was briefly addicted during residency herself and lost her fiance, was an anesthesia resident. And I know, I don't know that story, but I did know a resident who had a major Opioid crisis who almost died. Uh, I knew one personally. I've heard lots of who actually did. And yes, that's exactly the message I'm trying to get. Nobody's immune for this. We shouldn't judge the people who are attached to this. And, uh, you know, and as you know, so many uh, recovered, uh, so many sober addicts and recovered addicts go back and give back to those who have helped them and get involved themselves. And so uh, for her, it, it made the story for Julie, who deals with these five teenagers who die on the night of that overdose. It's so personal to her. She's lost her fiance. She knows it could have been her any time. And so it really invests her in this investigation and in this story. But it's in a broader sense also meant to establish that opioids aren't specific. They can derail anyone in the right circumstances.
0: With all great novels, they have to have in common great, relatable, usually flawed characters. And if we don't come to relate to the characters positively or negatively, we don't have some feeling about them, then it's really hard to engage with the story. It's it's hard to care about the outcomes. And you've created across your novels, great, rich, diverse characters. Thank you. Um, where, where do your characters come from? How do you, how, how do they start? And how do you bring the components together to flesh them out?
1: Well, what I definitely tend to do is I'm not to base um, characters on real people that I know, because every time I've done that, they've come across as characters. And as a cute aside, um when pandemic first came out one of the characters in the story had a kind of unusual first name and uh, she was not a villain or a good guy she was kind of an obstructive mid-level bureaucrat and uh one of the charge nurses happened to have the same first name and she had a great sense of humor i came in one day she's just glaring at me she goes you put me in your novel i said no no i didn't and she said, yeah, you did. Not only that, you made me a totally unlikable bitch who never gets laid. <laughs> was like, well, I've learned a lesson about using people's names. But um, I, I, I never consciously base a character on anybody I know. I don't know where they come from, to be honest with you. I know when they work. I know because I know how easy they are to write. I know when I'm really struggling writing a scene with a character that, that I haven't hit on the right characters. But where they come from, I don't even second guess. I just, you know, I weirdly, this sounds both psychotic and megalomaniacal at the same time, but I kind of enjoy meeting them when they appear because some of the characters, yeah, I, I didn't even know that part was in me. And, uh, you know, I, I find them whatever funny or, you know, empathetic or, or whatever, you know, when, when they're my very favorite characters. And those are usually my secondary, not my main characters.
0: One of the things that really stood out for me in this novel was the massive amount of diversity amongst the characters. In terms of culture, you had Chinese, Croatian, Filipino, Black, Ismaili, Persian, South Asian, and more. Gender, obviously, with the writing of female protagonists, you had members of the LGBTQ community. I guess one of the questions I have is, is there room for a cisgendered Caucasian male in a Dan Calla novel? (laughs) Yeah, there is. They just don't sell anymore, right? I mean,
1: i got to admit, between you and me, right, writing a female protagonist, I love. I mean, I I have this incredible mom, and I grew up with this incredible female who's a doctor and a trailblazer and just this incredible person. So I've always had this huge admiration, and I feel like I can, I can truly understand a, a woman's point of view enough if there is such a thing. It's such a gross stereotype, but mm-hmm. I feel comfortable writing female characters, probably the best way to say it. But this was, it's been a conscious choice that my publisher has asked me because 80% of book buyers are women and they have asked me to consider female protagonists. So the last three novels in a row, I now have uh, a female protagonist and, and lots of male characters, obviously. There are some cisgender, straight male <laughs> characters in there. But uh, yeah, but you know, this story was about Vancouver, which is one of the most culturally diverse cities, right? And, and so it was very important to me. The cop, as you know, is uh, Asian-Canadian, but significant percent of the villains in this book are part of the chinese triad organized crime that that came from mainland china and i wanted to be fair and present both sides cuz sadly in in the criminal horrible fentanyl underworld there is all kinds of ethnic gangs that are involved in the various trade from the persians the chinese the hondurans the south Asians there's a, you know and obviously the white North American, it's, it, it's not obviously just the ethnicity, but it's one of the striking things about the drug world here. It's multicultural of, in the extreme.
0: Speaking about that character, one of the heroes in your novel, um, he's of Chinese heritage. And I, I love the scene where he was sitting having a meal with other characters of a mixed cultured group. And he was reflecting on the fact that his third generation Canadian status made him the most Canadian in the room. I love that. <laughs> yeah. is, uh, is telling stories with uh, with race and culture an important theme or sub theme in, in the books?
1: Yeah, I love that. You know, he establishes the other two, even though they're very much white characters, they're, they have European backgrounds and his, his roots go back the deepest in Canada. It's just, you know, he was being self-effacing about it and but it's a very real point, right? And, yeah. you know, and we have such, we're so fortunate here not to have, I don't think nearly the depth of racial issues they have to the South of us and, you know, multiculturalism is established. So, yeah. We, and it's fun to kind of explore other cultures and other ethnicities a bit and try to understand some of the challenges they face. Cause as you know, this character as well takes it very personally that he's dealing with Chinese organized crime and, mm-hmm. you know, and he has almost a, particular bias against them because of that so
0: let's uh, talk about the locations you referred to this being in in many ways a book about vancouver i I personally love when i'm reading a book or watching a movie or tv series that features vancouver or the lower mainland i feel like a bit of an insider when the locations or the streets or the landmarks are mentioned and it's kind of like i've been there and i feel even more part of it the last high as you said takes place in vancouver and, and travels around a bunch of the suburbs of the lower mainland is it an important part of your process to write about home Uh, Not usually.
1: Uh, You know, this was interesting. I've written probably of my 11 novels, three of them have some Vancouver setting. This is by the first one, the only one that's exclusively uh, even primarily located in Vancouver. So that was different. And then, you know, and much as I grew up here, I, I love this city more than anybody. But I truly and I've you know, other interviews have asked me this, I, I show deliberately show this dark underbelly that other people don't get to see of this city because it's very much, you know, and I you know, I joke one of the characters jokes that Vancouver is kind of a six dressed up as a nine, which I don't always believe, but it has this seedy and sad, you know, side to it, as we know, a real, real drug problem, a real crime problem in this city. And so it was important to me to to kind of lay it bare and also you know the characters all love Vancouver, all the main characters, but they they see the sh- you know the 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 flaws in the city.
0: Easter eggs, I think, are kind of fun in movies if you know that there's inside jokes that are written into yeah. software or movies, and sometimes we hear about them in uh, in the uh, special features on a DVD back when we watch DVDs. One of the little fun things you put in there is that Julie has a colleague at St. Michael's who writes medical th- thrillers, and I'm, I'm wondering yeah. if. Uh... <laughs> That was a nice little reference. Would other people who work at St. Paul's Hospital discover other inside surprises that other readers might huh. not know about? uh no, I don't think so. i uh, you know <laughs> for any of my colleagues
1: who might be listening to this at St Paul's, I did not put you in the novel <laughs> at least not, not deliberately. no, but you know that's funny. out of that one line I get more comments about, and my editor wanted to cut kind it. Of she said that you know it's all fine to be a bit self referential because i think i said what did i say that he writes passable or they're not half bad i think is what i said about yeah that. and she said uh, you know i don't know that but but people seem anybody who knows me or who knows that i write i get all these emails about to read that line so i'm glad i put it in and it's fairy eh? i mean it's a reflection of our community like when you list all the stuff you do and all the stuff you're interested in all the various aspects it's one of the joys of emergency medicine as we have these options and you know these lives outside the emergency department but a lot of our colleagues who are, work long hours and baker's hours don't get in medicine so i wanted uh, that whole scene was about or that brief scene was about her describing all the different things that emergency doctors do outside of work so
0: I'm going to throw a couple of quick questions at you before we move towards concluding the interview as an author, would you prefer that I buy an ebook or an analog copy of your book?
1: I'm kind of traditional, so always an analog copy On the other hand, ebooks are harder to share so there are certain advantages
0: <laughs> I understand How long does it take from inception when you really link on and say no this is the one I finished this
1: book in uh, September of 2018 or whatever, and, or October, the first draft. And it's just coming out now. And I've already finished the next novel. It won't be out till next year. But this book in particular was incredible. Once I hit on the idea, I wrote it in about three months. I've never written a manuscript that fast. It just, and that's why it felt so right. It was just, it was just organic. You know the, the the historical trilogy, which took a lot of research, and 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 frankly, I wasn't as confident writing in the historical vein for the first one. That first draft of the first novel probably took me, you know, fifteen, sixteen months. I sometimes can write very quickly, and never more quickly than this novel. Do you have a writer's little black book of ideas that you've got for future? No, uh, yeah, no. I I wish I did. I don't. <laughs> You know, I'm in that process now of starting to look at what what I might write about next. So, I mean, I have a few ideas that have been rejected in the past that I don't really go back to them. So, no, it's generally I'm kind of on the hunt for one idea. I'm very, you know, it's uh, you know, what counteracts my ADHD is my OCD, right? So once <laughs> I lock onto something, I get hyper focused. So,
0: yeah. What advice do you have for the Emergency Medicine Network members for your colleagues on pursuing their passions? avoiding or recovering from burnout or just being well it's a great question just go for it right like uh, there's no guarantee it's not like
1: i've gotten rich off my writing a little bit of you know extra income is really nice and it's hard work but it is just so incredibly fulfilling to do something else to turn that medicine part of your brain off and do something else and i know you know this from all your pursuits but i think it truly extends the longevity of your career i think i've bizarrely enjoyed emergency medicine a lot more because i write um and sometimes you know as much as the writing is an escape from emergency medicine often it's vice versa emergency medicine is a nice escape and getting back into a social environment and seeing people again and so i'd encourage you know we are so fortunate to be shift workers in that sense to have the time to pursue something else it's so worthwhile no matter what you you know, the success should be judged on on what satisfaction it gives you, not what the results
0: of it are. Right? So book 11, The Last High, focusing on the opioid crisis, what would you like to see happen in the community or in the diverse communities of your readers as a result of taking in your novel? Well, you
1: know, I don't know how much I can educate our colleagues on this crisis, maybe just Raise the awareness now that it's slipped a little bit the COVID, but I feel like the public in general could learn a lot more and could learn. You know, as I said, there's, there's nothing, there's no point in treating this like a criminal disease, except for the criminals who supply the drugs. Their, harm reduction is clearly the answer out there, and getting people on safe alternative opioid agonist therapy or getting them treatment. Don't stigmatize the the users, but understand they're suffering from a disease and understand that no matter how high and mighty you are, you are at risk, maybe not yourself, but someone you know, someone you love of being touched by this crisis and have more sympathy and empathy for for all the victims and the families of the victims.
0: Since this podcast is for the Emergency Medicine Network, for those who haven't been there, if you go to bcemn.ca or bcemergencynetwork.ca, there are some resources on opioids. Melissa Allen has done a conversion table on oral opioids that's available online. There's suboxone initiation orders from Jason Whale. There's management of opioid overdoses from our eMERGE physician and toxicologist colleagues, Andrew Kessler, Chris DeWitt, Roy Purcell, Jesse Godwin. And again, Melissa Allen has a patient information sheet on suboxone as well. So if people haven't checked out those resources, certainly encourage you doing that. Dan, thanks again for taking the time to chat today. Your book's already been extremely positively reviewed, and it's two weeks, and I know it's been featured on the top of some bestseller lists. So congratulations on that. I feel very proud as as, as a colleague and as one of your early readers to to see your success. Yeah, I
1: think people, you know, I, it, it means a lot. Adam would write to me after my first couple books and tell me whatever you enjoyed them or that your one of your kids was reading That's them. That's right? right. Yeah, right my kid. daughter Nadia. Um, and, and uh, your daughter that's right and that means a lot it meant a lot to me so i really do appreciate all the support
0: you give me along the way so thank you well that's great you've already um you've given a little reveal that there's another one already in the shoe so maybe when that one comes out next year we... Anti, anti-vax anti-vax and vaccine is the new theme so. okay well maybe yeah. we can chat again next year when that one comes out um thanks also to carolyn mckinnon the emergency medicine network communication leads and the, this podcast producer and to carrie lewis who's the uh, thankless behind the scenes admin support so really appreciate that and thank you to the Reese emergency medicine network not the webpage, not the committees, not the managers, the network. The network is you, everyone who's listening, the people, doing their best in the emergency departments around the province and around the world, providing exceptional emergency care everywhere. Be safe, everyone. Adam out.